science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Well, in a few hours, we're ready to say goodbye to 2023. Has not been the best of years, has it? Uh, Hopefully, the next one will be better. Let me uh, get started the same way that we always do. A couple of questions for you guys. First of all, how long is the human lifespan? How long is the human lifespan? And the second question to get us going here today, following. Prompted by a surgical assistant skin reaction to carbolic acid, Surgeon William Halstead pioneered the use of what in 1890 at Johns Hopkins Hospital? So we're looking back to 1890, Johns Hopkins Hospital, when Surgeon William Halstead pioneered something. And it was prompted by a surgical assistant skin reaction to carbolic acid. So those are the two questions that you can uh, put your thinking caps on for. And give us a call at 514-790-0800, or you can text your comments, questions to 514-800. And of course, I think it goes without saying that you can ask whatever scientific question you have on your mind uh, in case I might have some idea about it. Well, uh, New Year's brings up uh, all kinds of uh, traditions. And uh, one that I remember, because this is uh, what we always used to do in Hungary, and I think it's it's still quite a, a widespread uh, uh, tradition. At midnight, you would eat aspic. And uh, aspic is this gelatinized stuff. You know, you when you make a, a soup, and it turns sort of into jelly-like stuff. Uh, that's aspic. And I'm not sure why that tradition started, but uh, indeed it did. And uh, I kind of recall that every uh, every New Year's. So I thought I would uh, delve into this a uh, little bit uh, for you. As you know, for 43 years, I've opened this radio show with uh, Tom Lear's song, The Elements, in which he cleverly weaves the names of the chemical elements into a song and it's uh, to the tune of uh, one from Gilbert and Sullivan's Pirates of uh, Penzance, sung by the general. Well, Tom, as it turns out, contributed more than music to our culture. He came up with the Jell-O shot, a gel that, let's just say, has a bit of kick to it. When Tom was in the army, In the 1950s, there was a Christmas party that, according to regulations, had to be dry, meaning no alcohol was to be served. Tom and a friend had an idea to circumvent the rule by sneaking in booze in the form of a dessert of jello made with alcohol. As it turned out, that took some experimenting. The schemers quickly discovered that you cannot make jello with alcohol. And uh, at this point, I do have to introduce a little bit of chemistry. Uh, Jello is made with gelatin, and uh, that in turn is made from collagen, a protein found in the bones, skin, and connective tissue of animals, 
including us, of course, humans, we're animals. Uh, collagen is not soluble in water, but when it is heated, especially with the addition of a little bit of acid or, or base, the long chains of amino acids that make up collagen are broken down into smaller fragments. These are called peptides. So they're just short chains of amino acids, whereas proteins are long chains of amino acids. Well, these peptides are soluble in water. And if the water is allowed to evaporate, a solid that can be pressed into sheets or a powder is left behind. That's gelatin. When gelatin is dissolved in hot water, the tangled peptide chains separate and move around freely in the solution. And then as that solution cools, the chains of amino acids are once more attracted to each other. But as they attempt to bind together, they trap water molecules in the matrix that forms and the result is a gel. But as Tom Lehrer found out, gelatin does not dissolve in alcohol. So the connivers had to first dissolve the jello in hot water and experiment with how much alcohol could then be added before the gelatin was forced out of solution. They eventually found just the right amount of orange jello, water, and vodka to produce a jello shot. And there was no problem sneaking that into the party. They managed to do it. Although gels produced by boiling animal bones had been known since the 10th century, granulated gelatin was only patented in 1845. That is uh, what Pearl Bixby used in 1897 to produce a dessert in Leroy, New York, that he trademarked as Jello. Appropriately, it is in Leroy that you can find the Jell-O Museum, replete with a host of memorabilia that includes samples of packages with all different flavors, molds to make the gel, spoons with images of hockey players with which to eat it, and even the head and neck of a giraffe made by a taxidermist. Why a giraffe? Because as the ad says, Jell-O feels so good when it slides down your throat, and giraffes have longer throats for it to slide down. You can even learn that comedian Jack Benny was Jell-O's first spokesperson. Uh, I don't know how much publicity the museum gives to Jell-O's longest-running spokesperson, who, of course, was uh, Bill Cosby. Uh, unlike Jell-O, that reference is likely to kind of leave a bad taste in people's mouth uh, these days because, of course, uh, all of the uh, crimes of which Bill Cosby has been uh, accused. <clears throat> but anyway, what prompted this story... Uh, is New Year's, because I said uh, uh, when I was young, the tradition was on New Year's Eve to eat uh, aspic. And uh, it is, of course, very similar to, to, to Jell-O. As I recall, it was uh, uh, made either from, um, from beef or, or from uh, pork. And what you do is you just uh, cook uh, some of the meat together with a lot of bones, <clears throat> as you would in uh, trying to make uh, soup. But you put a lot of, of, uh, of bones and, and meat and not that much water so that the water really turns into um, a gel when the uh, collagen breaks down due to the heat. And uh, then, as I explained, it forms the, um, the gel. So there's a little bit of uh, uh, tradition uh, for you. Uh, I guess uh, one could follow that tradition these days by eating Jello uh, on uh, on New Year's uh, Eve. Anyway, I did get myself a bit of real aspic.
and uh, because they do have it on sale at uh, uh, Bucharest on uh, on Jean Talon. So I will be uh, sort of thinking back to those, uh, uh, you know, in your mind, you always think that they were the good old days. But, uh, uh, you know, the fact is that today is really the, the good days. Uh, we have much better and easier life than it was back then. So anyway, that's my little stint here about uh, Aspic and uh, Angelo. Grade A milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkalide, silicon dioxalite, lots of sugar. Hey, all right. Calcified synthetic salt, artificial barley malt, glycerin and aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. Monosodium glutamate, dehydrated calcium soybean oil, buzzer back, sensor. All right, let's see if anyone has an answer to one of the questions I asked. And as is always the case, Kenny is on the line. Hello, Kenny. Good afternoon, Joe. Happy New Year, eh? Same to you. <clears throat> Thank so you. Which... I got the, what is a human expanded? Well, early human immigrations are approximately too many years when the 45,000... Whoa, 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 whoa. That was not the question. The question was, what is the human lifespan? Human lifespan. Oh, what, what is the human lifespan, eh? Yeah. I, 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 I know what it is, uh... It's a, okay. Uh, well, we'll see if someone else has. We'll see if someone else has. Thirty-one answered. years. Thirty-one years of lifespan. Hello. No, no it's not. Is that right? Okay, we'll leave this to someone else. So we're still got the question about <clears throat> the length of the human lifespan, and uh, of course, I still have the the other question uh, uh, hanging out there about uh, what happened eighteen ninety at Johns Hopkins Hospital. That's, of course, in Baltimore, when Surgeon William Halstead pioneered the use of something. And this uh, was prompted by his surgical assistant's skin reaction to carbolic acid. If you know the answer to that, give us a call, 514-790-0800, or you can text your questions and comments to 514-800. You know, around uh, this time of the year, people, of course, eat a lot of sweets and uh, unfortunately, very often uh, go overboard uh, with that. And uh, so I want to just talk a little bit about uh, that and and the fact that, you know, uh, sometimes when you are in a celebratory mood, it's okay to eat something, you know, to even go overboard. And uh, as I've so often said, it's always the long term that we're we're talking about, not not the uh, you know single impulse to eat a cake or or a donut. So uh, let me talk about donuts because uh, I, I do kind of have a, a, a fondness for them. Although I certainly I, right now I tell you the truth, I can't even remember the last time that I ate one. But uh, I'll tell you somewhat sheepishly that uh, uh, when I was growing up, uh, the snack in Hungary was uh, bread smeared with globs of goose fat and goose liver, and we'd sprinkle little paprika on it. And I I wasn't the only one to enjoy that delicacy. This, This was standard fare. We didn't know about cholesterol in those days, and not much attention was paid to to diet. Uh, today, 
If I would suggest this snack to people, they would probably be reviled by the nutritional horror and uh, think that, you know, uh, anyone who puts uh, goose fat on, on bread is, is crazy. Yet, offer them a Krispy Kreme donut and they'll happily chomp away. And they probably won't stop at one. Guess which is worse for you, the goose fat or the donut? Well, you know that it's the donut, otherwise I wouldn't be telling you the story. Uh, most donuts contain a whopping dollop of some 10 to 18 grams of fat, mostly of the saturated variety and uh, often the dreaded trans fat as well. The goose fat on my bread was maybe 5 grams, none of it trans. Most of you probably know my philosophy on nutrition because I've, I've voiced this over and over again. I don't like to single out foods as angels or devils. I emphasize that one has to pay attention to the overall diet. It is possible to never eat a donut and still have a terrible diet. And it's possible to eat donuts and have a good diet. But you sure can't eat them often. They really are a nutritional nightmare. Uh, a Krispy Kreme original glazed donuts, and I, I don't want to pick specifically on Krispy Kreme. I mean, this this goes for for uh, forgive us even Tim Hortons donut. About two hundred calories and twelve grams of fat per donut. Six of these grams are saturated or trans fats. Now, the total trans and saturated fat we should be eating a day is about twenty grams. So three of these guys, and you're at your daily limit, and you haven't eaten anything else yet. To boot, the original glazed is the least fatty of the Krispy Kreme family. Now, it's not that Tim Hortons or Dunkin' Donuts are any better. In fact, a Hortons uh, chocolate glazed concoction, 350 calories, and a monstrous 22 grams of fat. I'm uh, just picking on Krispy Kreme because it is, you know, uh, very popular and uh, people actually go to see how the donuts are made because you can see them being made behind a, you know, plexiglass uh, panel. And I'm not sure why they want to show this, but anyway, it's pretty interesting to watch. Uh Anyway, the proliferation of the you know donut emporiums across Canada uh, is is legendary. Canada is the world champion. Uh, we may no longer rule in hockey all the time, and you know who would have ever thought that we would be tied two two with Germany after two periods? You know, as almost inconceivable, but that's what's happening. Uh, but we are still the world's leader when it comes to eating donuts. Canadians consume more donuts per capita than any other nation in the world. According to the Reliable Center for Science and the Public Interest, we also have more donut shops than any other country in the world. And their popularity is increasing. Uh, you know, I mean, of course, you know, there's the full view that you get when you go into a Krispy Kreme Emporium and you can see them uh, there. And uh, you go into any Tim Hortons, and you get lineups. Uh, so, you know, people are eating a lot of this stuff. Uh, I I don't know why they persist in showing the public, you know, the, the fat bath in which the donuts are frying. 
and you can see that it has to be constantly replenished by fat gushing from a tube to compensate for what is being absorbed by the uh, donuts. Well, I don't want to be a spoil sport, uh, but when our national sport changes from hockey to donut eating, we do have a problem. And uh, if you think uh, I was committing an additional crime when I was eating goose fat, well, compared to what we find in our donut shops today, uh, that was kind of uh, health health food. Uh, but again, you know, I, I don't want to belabor this point, but I'm, I'm not trying to, to scare you away from eating that uh, occasional donut because, you know, pleasure is also a, a part of life and it should be a, a part of life and food is, is certainly a source of, of pleasure. So, you know, the, the constant uh, harangue that we get from, you know, the alarmists out there about what to eat and what not to eat uh, you know, I don't, uh, I don't subscribe to that. Uh, I think we do need to take a look always at the overall uh, diet. And uh, you know, I, I must say that over the years, I've, I've kind of changed my, uh, my view. I'm not going to tell you that I will never eat uh, some, uh, you know, uh, goose fat or goose liver on a piece of bread again. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, my mouth waters just when I think of that. Although I I wouldn't even know where to get it now, you know. I mean, yeah, you can buy some foie gras. Um, not exactly the same. Not exactly the same as you know what I remember from uh, uh, eating the uh, goose fat on 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 bread. But uh, I've also because obviously I've I've followed uh, developments in in food and nutrition for many many years. Uh, of course, I have a different view uh, on these matters and i know that what we eat uh, does matter it's uh, you know clear that food is the only raw material that ever goes into our body and uh, obviously we are made of whatever we eat and all the chemical reactions that go on in our body all the time are a function of what we put into our mouth so obviously it it matters and um, over the last uh, couple of decades uh, we've had numerous studies uh, that show that eating uh, a diet that has more plant foods in it is is really the way to go. And um, you know, uh, it's probably not something that people want to hear because, let's face it, meat tastes pretty good to most people. But we follow the science. And uh, when you look around the world, and I mentioned to you, I think I mentioned to you last week, this uh, Netflix uh, program on um, blue zones around the world. It's a very interesting program. It's a, uh, it, it was put together by a writer for National Geographic who has traveled around the world and documented uh, people's longevity uh, in certain areas. And these are blue zones. And uh, Okinawa uh, in Japan, uh, the area of Loma Linda in California, uh, an area in Costa Rica, uh, then one Sardinia and the island Icaria in, in Greece uh, are places where there is um, longevity that is, is greater than elsewhere. So it's looked at, you know, what the lifestyle is. And uh, the, what, what we see is that they eat a lot of plant foods and, you no, know, they don't eat hamburgers, they don't eat hot dogs, they don't eat smoked meat sandwiches. And... Uh, that is really the, the way to go. Uh, I, I think we need to emphasize uh, plant-based foods uh, in, in our diet. Uh, 
because we abide by you know the research and uh, that's the way things are going Right, maybe uh, Jerry can show us what he's learned because he's on the line. Hi, Jerry. Yes, hi, Dr. Joe. I think uh, for Halstead, he was the first one to develop an aseptic technique. Uh, no, actually, that was oh, that could have been Lister, I guess. For him, that was Joseph Lister. Lister, who yeah. That. Hmm. And oh, or fact, is it Lister... a surgical residency program? No, that actually was William Osler. Okay. Uh, but uh, uh, it was, um, uh, I mean, had something to do with uh, with Lister. Lister, of course, was the one who introduced carbolic acid or phenol, yes. yeah. uh, which uh, kills bacteria. Uh, yeah. But uh, Halstead's surgical assistant, when was working with uh, uh, phenol, had yeah. uh, rash on, on her hands. Mm. That should give you a key to what Halstead developed. Probably an anti-allergy medication or protocol? No, it wasn't a medication. It was simpler than that. Gloves? Yes. <laughs> yeah, he was He was the first one, ah, uh, amazingly, to develop the use of latex gloves for surgery. Ah, and before that time, they just operated with their bare hands. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, they washed them. But that wasn't even always the case because, you know, they were not really that, that aware of uh, antisepsis. Even we, though did Lister, that in dentistry, course, uh, we did that in dentistry when I graduated, by the way, barehanded. Yes, yeah. Until and, 1988. And I, bet you, you, I, I bet you also when you trained, you were standing up. Yes. Yeah. We started, to, sitting, down, we started sitting down in the late 70s, and then we gloved in 1988 after the first AIDS cases. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting that some of these things, which seem to be so obvious, <laughs> you know, I mean, why would you want to be standing all day when you could be sitting? Yeah, and the gloves, right? I mean, if I may, the first time I wore one, my patients were insulted because they thought that I thought they had diseases. Right. Yeah, uh, I told them they didn't know if I did. When you, when you had to switch to gloves, I mean, how did you find that that affected the uh, the, the dexterity. Well, that was yeah. the big. That was the big worry. A lot of dentists really protested against that. I thought it was easy if you paid enough money to get good gloves, as opposed to, you know, just uh, some of the gloves in the beginning were terrible. But I mean, I didn't have a problem at all, and I just thought it was just logical. I mean, we had blood and saliva, and name it. Uh, you know, uh, people got herpes from their patients, and uh, all kinds of other yeah. hepatitis, yeah. and so on yeah. and so forth. So. Yeah, just very, very logical. Yeah, didn't the switch was quite easy. And today, when I tell that to young, uh, young graduate dentists, they just go, "Ugh, they can't even imagine," you know, or a mask either. I know. Well, also, can we imagine that hockey goalies didn't wear masks? Yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> Perhaps right. I can also attempt the, the the lifespan question. Yeah. I'd say one fifty. No, it's not. Okay, they, well, because the life expectancy and lifespan are two things. Oh, they're very different. Life expectancy yeah. is what the average person can expect to, yeah. to, to live. It's about 80. Uh, yeah. Lifespan 
is the maximum number of years that a member of a species has ever lived. Oh, 122 so, then. That's right. It is yeah. exactly 122. That's right. Which was Madame Jean Calment, yeah. a French lady. And uh, she reached a ripe old age of 122. And interesting enough, at 115, she gave up smoking. <laughs> and when asked why, she said it's because she wanted to live a long time. <laughs> Isn't that something? Eh? And Excellent. she lived seven more years. Oh, boy. Well, yeah. thanks again, Dr. Joe. Happy New Year Okay, too. thanks very much. Okay, so we've had our, our questions uh, uh, answered, uh, which, of course, means that uh, I do need to ask another question. What is CADGUT made of? What is CADGUT made of? If you know the answer, 514-790-0800, or you can text 514-800, and it seems that these days that is what people would rather do. They would rather text than speak. All right. Since it is New Year's, we got to talk about uh, champagne. Fascinating stories told by the guide on a tour of perhaps the most famous champagne house in the world. Moet et Chardon in Reims, in France, is the producer of Dom Perignon, the king of bubblies. The traditional saucer-shaped champagne glasses, the guide explains, were actually modeled after the shape of Madame de Pompadour's breasts. Louis XV's favorite paramour, as the fable goes, commissioned a glassblower to make the glasses in order to please the king who was so enamored of her bosom. Well, that story goes down well with the tourists probably better than the champagne goes down from the saucer-shaped glasses. Whatever the real etiology of the glasses, one thing is for sure. They are the wrong shape for drinking champagne. Without a doubt, the greatest appeal of this exalted beverage is the presence of the bubbles. You know how many per glass? Seems hard to believe. Some five million in every glass. I wonder who sat there and counted the five million bubbles. <laughs> a tremendous amount of effort goes into keeping uh, them in the beverage. Unfortunately, a saucer-shaped glass provides a large contact surface with the air, maximizing the rate at which the bubbles escape. Ideally, therefore, champagne should be sipped from a tall, narrow glass. But why should we attach so much importance to the way champagne should be consumed? Well, seeing that we probably pay the king's ransom for a bottle of the king of wines and the wine of kings, we might as well benefit from the full intended effect. The bubbles should burst in the mouth, not in the hand. The solubility of carbon dioxide decreases as temperature increases. Serving the champagne cold, therefore, minimizes the amount of gas that escapes before we raise the glass and ensures that delightful tingling sensation when the drink comes into contact with a warm mouth. It's also important to drink champagne from um, a, a, a glass that uh, is of high quality, one that has few imperfections. Tiny air bubbles can get into uh, get, get trapped in the nicks in the glass as the drink is poured and the dissolved carbon dioxide then vaporizes into those bubbles. 
since the carbon dioxide is less than than less dense than the surrounding solution, the bubbles stream to the surface. For the same reason, swizzle sticks, which can have many surface blemishes, are obviously contraindicated for champagne. Well, so much for the bubbles. <clears throat> but what about the drink itself? This regal beverage is produced mainly from black grapes in the Champagne region of France. From the moment the Pinot Noir grapes are pressed in the vineyard, where almost fanatical care, uh, they ensure that not even a trace of black skin ends up in the white juice. And until the cork pops, Champagne receives more care and attention than any other wine in the world. Don Perignon, a blind monk, got the ball rolling in the 18th century. He discovered that if a bottle of wine were tightly sealed before the fermentation was complete, the bubbles of carbon dioxide could not escape and an effervescent drink would be produced. His keen sense of smell, the result of his blindness, allowed him to maximize the flavor of the wine through judicious blending of different juices. To this day, Champagne is produced by the methods initiated by Dom Perignon. The blended juices are fermented, filtered, and bottled. In the case of pink champagne, a touch of red wine is added. Then, before a cork is inserted and secured with a wire cage, some extra sugar and yeast are added to provide for the so-called secondary fermentation, which takes place in the bottle over the next several years. During this period, a sediment consisting mostly of expired yeast cells is produced and has to be removed through an ingenious procedure. The bottles are stored with their necks tilted down in racks, which can be adjusted to slowly increase the angle of the tilt. To make sure the sludge accumulates in the neck, the remueur walks up and down the aisles of racks, giving each bottle a little twist to the right and then to the left. He can do about 30,000 bottles a day. This is not very stimulating work. The remueur has to be richly compensated, as is reflected in the final cost of the champagne. After the secondary fermentation is complete, the bottle is ready for the degorgement. The neck is dipped into a freezing brine solution until the wine and sediment in the neck solidify. In the classic process, a highly skilled degorgeur uncorks the bottle, allowing the frozen plug to burst out. These days, except for the real premium champagnes, machines perform the task. Sugar is then added, with the amount determining whether the champagne will be brut, sec, or demi-sec. The bottle is then quickly resealed, few years of aging, and we are ready to pop the cork, as many of us will be doing tonight at midnight. The police officers could hardly believe their eyes. 
The 18-year-old driver they had just pulled over sat there speechless, a wad of white fabric sticking out of his mouth. He had ripped the crotch out of his underwear and stuffed it into his mouth in an apparent attempt to fool the breathalyzer. Some scientific memory about the absorbency of cotton must have stirred in his confused mind to prompt the bizarre act. But the breathalyzer was not fooled. Neither was it fooled by the teenager who was caught ferociously sucking on pennies after being stopped. He must have remembered a bit of chemistry had learned about alcohol, the bit about alcohol being oxidized to acetaldehyde by the action of copper. He figured he'd be in the clear since the breathalyzer tests for alcohol in the breath and not acetaldehyde. Unfortunately, the genius didn't remember the reaction quite right. Ethanol, the alcohol of beverages, can indeed be converted to acetaldehyde by copper, but only when the copper is red hot. Then there are those whose alibi is that they had just rinsed their mouth with mouthwash. But this doesn't wash either. Sure, mouthwashes contain alcohol, and a false breathalyzer reading is possible. But only if the mouthwash was used immediately before giving the breath sample. Alcohol from a mouthwash dissipates within a couple of minutes, and guidelines state that a suspect has to be observed for several minutes before a breathalyzer test is undertaken. So carrying some mouthwash in your car and hoping to take a swallow if you are stopped by the police, well, I'm going to cut it. It is surprising that people resort to such curious acts when they've overindulged. Well, I guess it's not really surprising. After all, alcohol certainly affects the brain and the rest of the body as well. The chemistry involved is absolutely fascinating. Of course, before alcohol can affect the brain, it has to get there. Most of the alcohol we consume is absorbed into the bloodstream from the stomach and the small intestine. But not all of the alcohol makes it through. Some is metabolized in the mucosa that lines the stomach and intestine. Here, enzymes convert ethanol, first to acetaldehyde, and then to acetic acid, neither of which is inebriating. In men, about 30% of a dose of alcohol meets its metabolic end in this fashion. But there's a definite gender bias here. The female stomach and intestinal lining is only about half as efficient at breaking down ethanol, so more makes it into the circulation. This explains why women may become tipsy more easily. And of course, also the smaller body weight makes a contribution. Once the alcohol is in the bloodstream, it passes through the liver. The liver is the body's main detoxicating organ and it detects alcohol as a potential troublemaker. First, an enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase snips a couple of hydrogen atoms out of the ethanol molecule, converting it to acetaldehyde. Then aldehyde dehydrogenase transforms this intermediate into acetic acid, which is either excreted or used by the body as a source of energy and is broken down into carbon dioxide and water gram of ethanol can provide about seven calories in this fashion. If the intake of alcohol is sufficiently high, the liver's detoxicating system becomes overburdened and some of the alcohol slips through unmetabolized. It can then wreak havoc 
in the brain. Ethanol does this by interfering with neurotransmitters, the chemicals brain cells use to communicate among themselves. At low alcohol levels, receptors for glutamate are activated, leading to stimulation and the loss of inhibition. This is the uh, social lubricant effect of alcohol. But as the concentration of alcohol rises, glutamate receptors actually become less responsive and words begin to slur and uh, what has been called cocktail party amnesia begins. Other neurotransmitter systems are also affected. Gamma aminobutanoic acid, usually abbreviated as GABA, is known as an inhibitory neurotransmitter because it prevents nerve cells from firing excessively. Alcohol stimulates GABA activity, which eventually causes sedation and relaxation. That is only part of a very, very complex uh, picture. Eventually, the effect wears off as the alcohol is excreted or is metabolized as it passes through the liver again. But as this is happening, there's often a matter of nausea, headaches, and flushed face to deal with. The culprit here is acetaldehyde, some of which escapes from the liver before being converted to acetic acid. As we well know, not everyone suffers these symptoms to the same degree. Many people of Asiatic origin are severely affected by facial flushing because nature has dealt them a very slow-acting version of aldehyde dehydrogenase, the enzyme that normally degrades acetaldehyde. Indeed, the same concept lies behind the prescription drug known as disulfiram, or antabuse, which is given to alcoholics. The idea is that the drug inactivates aldehyde dehydrogenase, forcing acetaldehyde into the circulation, and that should make the drinker so sick that he gives up the booze. Unfortunately, it is much more common that he gives up the drug. Some of the effects of acetaldehyde can linger till the morning and uh, contribute to, of course, what is called the hangover. Interestingly, the hangover business hasn't been extensively researched as one would think. That's because solving the problem would come with quite a bit of social baggage. The concern is that elimination of the hangover could cause people to drink more. Still, we do know that there is more to the hangover than just the remnants of acetaldehyde. The metabolism of alcohol in the liver produces some free radical debris, which is usually taken care of by glutathione, one of the body's most important antioxidants. When the system is overwhelmed, these free radicals can contribute to the hangover. That is why there has been some success in treating hangovers with supplements of N-acetylcysteine, which serves as a source of cysteine, the critical compound the body needs to generate more glutathione. Eggs also contain cysteine, which may explain their folkloric use to treat hangovers. I don't want to deal anymore really with, with hangovers and, and all of the supposed uh, cures, including the uh, hair of the dog, uh, which suggests that you know drinking again in the morning is going to cure the symptoms. Because I think it is more important to discuss how not to have a hangover. It is not fun to overconsume alcohol, and it isn't funny when we see someone who's drunk. There are very significant dangers of over-consuming alcohol, and of course we know 
the number of accidents that are caused by drunken drivers. So alcohol as a social lubricant can be certainly a fun uh, beverage when it is consumed in moderation. But overdoing it, as I expect a number of people are going to do tonight, is not the way to go. Alcohol can be a very dangerous substance, especially when it is consumed by someone in excess who's going to drive a car. So tonight, as New Year's Eve rolls around and people are out celebrating, make sure that there is always someone who has not overdone it, who is ready to sit behind the wheel and drive the others home. Of course, it is also much better if none of the others get drunk either. We've talked a lot about alcohol uh, this past year, not necessarily in this context of, of um, alcohol, you know, uh, causing hangovers and, and uh, causing uh, accidents. But in terms of uh, uh, consuming alcohol over the years and whether or not it is uh, uh, likely to increase the risk of cancer. And I think the answer to that now is pretty clear, uh, that alcohol is indeed a carcinogen, increases the risk of breast cancer, increases the risk of uh, uh, oral cancers. And uh, if that isn't enough to scare you from over-consuming, I don't know what, what would be. Uh, cancer, of course, is a terrible disease, and you don't want to, to do anything that increases your, your risk of it. So if you're going to enjoy some alcohol tonight, by all means, have that glass of champagne. Maybe even have two, but no more than that. And drink it from a tall glass, not the saucer-shaped one that supposedly was modeled on the shape of Madame de Pompadour's breast. And that is it for today. And that's it for us for 2023. We'll be back with you in 2024. And that rolls around next week. Same time, same station. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>